Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Looker, released October 30th, 1981. It was written and directed by Michael Crichton and released by Warner Brothers. Fox was working with Crichton to adapt his novel Congo to film, and Looker was initially planned as a follow-up production. Crichton expressed to studio head Sherry Lansing some concern about the feasibility of realistically portraying apes without using the actual endangered species on set, and ultimately Congo was put in turnaround. Well, that Go- makes sense, because I was like, I was pretty sure that Congo came out in the 90s. Yeah, mid-90s. <laughs> and it's a good thing they got those realistic apes, question mark? <laughs> yeah, no, they don't look good, but they look better than they would have in 81. Fair Maybe. enough. What do you mean? Apparently, in 81, we're able to render fully realistic mm-hmm. digital humans. Oh, that's true. I didn't even consider that, because it's not true. Producer Frank Yablans, brother of Halloween 2 producer Erwin Yablans, was already attached to Looker and carried the project over to Paramount, a studio he had headed in the early 70s. After Alan Ladd's ousting from Fox, he formed the Ladd Company and set about acquiring projects he felt had been unfairly cast aside by Fox so far on the podcast, discounting Bette Midler's Divine Madness concert film that has included Chariots of Fire, Outland, and Body Heat, three decent films that probably deserved a full-throated distribution. And then I guess it was released in a partnership with Warner Brothers because the distributor is listed as Warner Brothers for this film. After a brief delay due to the 1980 actor strike, the film began production in January of 1981. This is a rare situation where Crichton wrote an original script that wasn't adapted from one of his own novels, or any novel even. It's also the only Crichton film to have ever gone over schedule and over budget. Oh, that's funny, because I was sitting here watching the film the whole time thinking, this might be one of those things that just worked better as a book than it did mm. as a movie. Yeah, it's like, wasn't <laughs> a book. Oh, it wasn't a book. Nope. Oh. <laughs> The film's original theme song, Looker, was written and composed by Barry Dvorzen and performed by Sue Saad, or Sue Sad? I don't know how to pronounce it. S-A-A-D. Emerald eyes, so cool and so inviting, hide the side. She never shows, she's a looker. That's what they say. She's got it all, yeah, she's got it. A cover by Kim Carnes was released as a track on her 1982 album Voyeur, which is probably the better version. But they're both great, and I've been subconsciously singing it all week now. <laughs> yeah. It- this is like I think I've said this for maybe one or two other films, but it was like we're in the '80s. Yeah, like it's like oh, this is it. We're in the '80s. Yeah. yeah, classic. Footage from the commercials in this film has been re-edited into a music video for the song "Data Kiss" by musician Com Trues, spelled exactly like a spoonerism of the actor's name, Tom Cruise. Com okay. Trues. We open with the Scanline Oak Tree logo of the Lad Company. The accompanying score reminds me of parts of the Matrix soundtrack. Those yeah. brass horns laying out. It's also like one of the longest 
production logos that come on the it screen. Takes it's a while. Just like, oh, is this, is this rendering in real time? Yeah. <laughs> Did Alan sit at the computer and type this out? The film starts in the form of a commercial for Ravish Perfume. A model, Lisa Convey, speaks directly into camera, and the narrator tells her she can win her boyfriend with a few drops of their fine product. This this commercial is great. Yeah, like I'm, I was already like enraptured with this movie just by this the, <laughs> how perfect of a commercial. I was like knowing the twist later on is like oh my god, it works. Yeah, <laughs> because this commercial is absolutely perfect. Yeah. A drop behind the knees would please, and dab a bit between your toe. My toe? You never know. She only has one toe? <laughs> That's a weird way to say it. Between <laughs> your toe? That reminds me of that SNL sketch. They're in, like, heaven, and they're designing man and woman, and there's, like, the guys that are designing man, and there's the ladies coming, and they're designing a woman, and they're like, oh, talking to the guys, is that your final design? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're close. And it's like, oh, it's really hairy, and... It, I only got one toe. <laughs> I was like, well, we might change a few things. But yeah, this is mostly it. <laughs> for some reason, that reminded me of the commercial for the Lux, which was the car for crazy people on SNL, mm. where they were like, it has enough storage capacity to hold 380 jars of your own urine in the front seat. <laughs> the Lux 420 SL, the car your neighbor's dog has been telling you to buy. <laughs> and the slogan at the end of the commercial goes, there's a radio in my fingernail. <laughs> car (laughs) we cut from the commercial to the same model lisa in dr robert's office presenting him with a list of her facial defects that she would like to see corrected they seem intensely precise my nose is 0.2 millimeters too narrow and my cheekbones are 0.4 millimeters too high and my chin has a little 0.1 bump here and my areola distance is five millimeters and i have a mole here on my ribs so I need plastic surgery. Most of her complaints sound nitpicky, but did she just say her areolas are only five <laughs> millimeters apart? <laughs> this just became emergency surgery. <laughs> Ellen, hold my calls. <laughs> Dr. Larry Roberts, played by Albert Finney, looks over the list that she has handed him on a printout. He questions her reasoning, suggesting that these changes she's asking for are negligible and nobody would notice the difference. She says it's for work and that he's done similar work for friends of hers. In another office, he consults with his partner, Dr. Belfield, and we learn that this will be the fourth patient to have brought in such an exacting list of problems to address. The doctor points out that if Roberts refuses the job, it will only go to someone less competent than him. He also promises to date the girl if Larry won't. I'll do her. Great. You do her. I'll take her out. She's really a looker. We launch into the film's theme song, Looker, over photographs of the model nude and x-rays of her skeletal structure. We see Lisa at home in her apartment, and her dog barks repeatedly. Someone rings her doorbell, and she answers in her underwear, but we don't see anyone standing there. Her eyes are zapped with a flash of light, and she freezes in place. When she gives up on the door, she walks back through the apartment, and the door slams shut on its own behind her. She momentarily loses track of the dog, Teddy, but finds him in her bedroom closet. When she turns around holding the dog, she notices a small briefcase on her bed with an indentation in the shape of a gun and the foam inside. She runs her fingers along the gun shape. Okay, so literally everything about every moment of this feels incredibly wrong. Like, not the parts where, like, it seems like something's actually messing with her. Yeah. But she's walking around in her underwear and high heels mm-hmm. alone in her apartment. Yeah. She, she answers, answers the, the door, door like that. In her she, underwear. And then she leaves and it open. she leaves the door open and walks back into her place like no big deal. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I for sure thought this was another commercial or a show 
and we're we're watching the production. We're waiting for a logo to show up, or 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 the the say cut and like pull back. Oh, the okay. camera was gonna pull back, and we're gonna see it was a set. Yeah, it's very weird every choice that she makes, but yeah. it's to set up the action of the scene, I guess. She wanders out onto her balcony where she is flashed with another zap of light. Suddenly, she's all wrapped up in the curtains and falls over the balcony out of her high-rise apartment. We see a huge mustachioed assassin in reflective wraparound sunglasses played by Tim Rosovich moving around the apartment behind the curtain. He very intentionally leaves a pen on a chair, collects his gun suitcase, and leaves behind what looks like a small woven leather ball on the bed. Later, we'll learn it's actually a button from a jacket. I think a lot of us already knew it was a button. I, I didn't know. So, didn't I didn't know, know so a lot of us. <laughs> a lot of us. At least a third of us already knew very it was a button. Very few of us. As few of us as possible. It's a very classic style looking button. I, Do I, I look like I wear classic buttons? I, I had no idea what it was. <laughs> Me and Richard have <laughs> never worn a button. button in our lives. <laughs> the only button we've ever worn is I like Ike. <laughs> what? I was going to say belly button. I got a button, but it's not from a shirt. No, no, no. I got a button, but it's not from a skirt. No, no, no. I got a button. It's a part of me. It's a button in the middle of my belly. It's my belly button. And it's right under my sweater. It's my belly button. And it's holding me together. The next morning, Dr. Larry leads us through his clinic, and the title lets us know that it is Friday. Yeah, and what bearing this will have on anything? I guess it's just to say we're starting the weekend off, so we understand why he's not at work for the next two days. Because uh, oh, oh I was so worried was, when the so doctor scared. wasn't going to go into work. <laughs> his secretary talks him through all the patients he'll be seeing today. One of them is a senator looking for a facelift to help with his presidential run. A second assistant reminds him of a black tie fundraising party tonight with bigwig John Reston. Dr. Belfield tells Larry that he has a job similar to the senator today, an admiral who wants to look younger to make joint chiefs. The guy is a military genius. He just doesn't look much. Maybe he's right. Dr. Roberts begins his first operation for Mrs. Emerson to the score of Vivaldi. We, uh, there's a clock on the wall right. that indicates the date is September 28th. Oh. Uh, so, it's fr- so I look back and see what day is Friday, September 28th, and I, I'm assuming that it was not supposed to take place in 1979. Okay. Because uh, that was the previous one. But the but then it could be taking place in the future, which would be 1984 would be the next. I'm guessing it's 79 and they were, that was when he wrote it. Mm-hmm. And they just stuck to what it said in the script. A secretary informs Dr. Roberts after the operation that he missed a call from the police and that he also has a patient named Cindy here for her final post-op checkup. While Roberts inspects her face, Cindy, played by Susan Day, hits on him a couple times and then compliments the work that he has done for her and her friends, Lisa, Susan, and Tina, who by coincidence she hasn't seen in a while. A Lieutenant Masters is paged into his office just as he excuses Cindy. Masters has questions about Lisa Convey and Susan Wilson. Apparently they're both dead. Dead? Last week Susan smashed her car into a freeway pylon and Lisa jumped from her apartment balcony last night. We're just following up. He describes them as best he can to the lieutenant. They were both patients who brought in lists of their defects for his surgical correction. Roberts asks his secretary to pull both of their files for the lieutenant, but she's having trouble tracking them down. Roberts assures the lieutenant that things don't often go missing around here. Despite the apparent official story, neither Dr. Roberts nor Masters are comfortable blaming the deaths on suicide. 
The lieutenant asks if Roberts ever dated these women, and he says he makes it a strict rule never to get involved with his patients. Do you guys remember the last time we heard someone advise against getting involved with patients? Was it a doctor or was it a psychiatrist? It was an EMT. It was an EMT. It was earlier this week. Oh, it was it Halloween? <laughs> Halloween, Halloween too. Halloween yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Bud said not to get involved with patients, but that nurses were fine. But it's like a Florence Nightingale syndrome. Exactly. That's why it's fine. The detective, because the nurses fix things, and the patients are like, no, I accidentally stabbed myself. The lieutenant asks if he's ever visited the apartments of these patients, and again, he denies it. Masters pretends to find the pen the hitman left in Lisa's apartment on the floor. Is this yours? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's been missing about a week. So, things do get misplaced in your office. As he puts the pen in his coat pocket, Masters clocks a missing button on his sleeve. Of three small woven leather balls, the middle one is missing. After Masters leaves, Roberts is informed that not only have the files of the two dead girls, Lisa and Suzanne, disappeared, but all of his files on the four women with exact lists have been removed from their archives. Cindy obviously just left, and Tina has just arrived. Tina meets with Roberts in his office and begins ranting about someone who's going around killing all the girls with perfect faces. She asks him to change her face back to how it was before she came here. They're killing all the girls that are perfect. You think I'm crazy? So who told you to make these changes? Tina puts on reflective sunglasses like the ones Rosevich was wearing in Lisa's apartment and lights a cigarette. She says she's flying home to be with her family and wants Roberts to recommend a surgeon to undo his work when she gets there. So... Is the implication here, to not get into spoilers, but the implication here that attempts have been made on her life, but because of the sunglasses? No. Well, I mean, it's possible that she's wearing the sunglasses because she figured that out. But I, th I think it's mostly that she knows that these other two people have been killed. Okay. I don't, I don't take the sunglasses as, as that much of a clue, but I thought it was worth mentioning because they are reflective, which mm -hmm. is interesting. And so I don't know if she was paranoid because things are going, weird things are happening or people are following her. Yeah. And, and they keep trying... But because she's wearing those sunglasses, it's yeah, not it hasn't worked. She seems to have it pretty well figured out, though. She, there seems to be stuff she's not telling yeah. him. So maybe she has done some work behind the scenes and managed to find some kind of a mm -hmm. defense against it. Their conversation is punctuated with several pages on behalf of the senator here for his facelift. Tina asks if the big man with the mustache has appeared in his office yet, and Roberts doesn't know who she's talking about. Tina suddenly runs out of his office when she remembers she left her bags at home. Roberts digs through the purse she left behind and finds the paperwork that lists all of her former defects before Roberts corrected them. He reads the name of the company off the printout. Digital Matrix. Roberts pages his assistant, Ellen, to ask her to call Lieutenant Masters and inform him that he is headed to Tina's apartment. Yeah, I, as soon as Tina left and he found the paper, I, I said to myself, okay, now this is where you call the police back. And you say... I'm on to something. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, God, he did it. Yeah. I was like, wow, he's actually thinking. At home, Tina runs around frantically before another flash of light hypnotizes her. And just as Dr. Roberts arrives, Tina is heard screaming and seen falling from her balcony, crashing hard into the roof of a parked car. And this is clearly a woman landing hard on her back right? on a car here. I and, and then falling off the side of the car. I was like, yeah. how do, there does not appear to be any, she's wearing like lingerie. Like there's no yeah. padding on her. There's no padding on the car. It doesn't even it look. It must like, just be a soft car that looks like. A, a real full didn't model look car. Soft to it me. didn't look soft at all. It looks like she hits it hard enough to break bones, honestly. But yeah, she slides off the car to the ground where Roberts checks for a pulse. 
He looks up and sees Rosevich in his shades peering over the edge, and then Roberts runs inside and upstairs. The apartment is in shambles, and as Roberts looks down on the parking lot, the police pull up. He tells his story to Lieutenant Masters, and Masters tells it back to him. You came up to find him, but when you arrived, you were alone. Is that it? That's it. That's the worst goddamn story I ever heard. It's the truth. Shit. <laughs> I was going to say, because people definitely saw him run inside from the street. Yeah. Like, pe- people came out of the apartment building, so there's no way he was up there when she fell. Yeah. But it's also like, you should have just waited down here for us to get here. Yeah. You didn't need to go up and taint the scene. You're not a detective. Roberts is apparently free to leave, and back in his car, he consults his patient list again to verify that three of the four digital Matrix patients are dead, and only Cindy survives. We cut to a photo shoot where Cindy is working with a group of girls doing some kind of track meet-themed photo spread. Dr. Roberts shows up and retracts his earlier rejection by inviting her on a date-ish thing tonight. He says his date for tonight's fundraiser canceled, and he'd like her to come along. At first, she doesn't seem interested. I mean, thanks, but I don't know if I can make it. I don't have time to get it done tonight. It's a John Reston. John Reston? John Reston does half the commercials in L.A.? I think that's right, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I couldn't. What time? Reston's party is a very quiet and fancy affair. Sometime later, Dr. Roberts is pitching the construction of a $7 million burn ward, and Reston, played by James Coburn, tosses in $4 million just to get his name on it. Dr. Roberts is taken aback by the man's generosity. Well, for four million, you can have quite a lot of say. <laughs> a bell is rung to indicate dinner is ready. Over the meal, Roberts confesses he has no idea what Reston's company even does. <laughs> it sounds like a hodgepodge of different technology investments. Reston brings up that Roberts was mentioned on the news regarding his connection to the deceased patients. Roberts doesn't seem bothered enough as a doctor to learn that the news is talking about how his patients keep dying. It might have made sense for us to see the consequences of this implication later. Instead, Roberts merely deflects. The police can't think that you had anything to do with it. Oh, no, no, it's nothing like that. Well, that's good. We couldn't get involved in anything uh, awkward. No, actually, the, uh, the girls are all linked with some company called Digital Matrix. Preston then reveals that his assistant-slash-girlfriend Jennifer here actually runs Digital Matrix, and she assures Roberts that all they did was measure the girls for possible surgery. Later, Cindy drags Larry away to meet a friend named Candy, and Reston and Jennifer talk suspiciously about how much they think Roberts knows at full volume walking through their own party. But it's like anybody could have overheard this, like, Do you think he knows? It sounds like he knows what we're up to. Maybe we should kill him. (laughs) But Reston seems like really like apprehensive. Is like I just I'm gonna get my name on a building. Like yeah, <laughs> he, he, he also to... seems like one of those supervillains that just gives a very sporting chance all the time. He's yeah, like, well hold on, you know we'll we'll stop him when we have to. I don't want to bother him. That night we see Roberts carry Cindy through his place and plop her down in a guest bed. He tells her where she can find anything she'll need in the night, and she's very confused when he leaves her to sleep alone. Sleep well. Where are you going? Larry? Another title for Saturday. Cindy wakes up in bed and the curtains are open, revealing that Roberts lives just a few steps away from the water. She's still confused why they didn't spend the night together, and he rushes her out the door to her job, offering to drive her there, and she smiles wide, excited at the boyfriendly favor that he's offering. We hard cut to Cindy collapsing in the sand with some weird 8-bit explosion sounds on the track. (laughs) 
But it's not like a sexy fall. It looks more like she just got hit in the spine with a crossbow bolt. It's a pained expression. <laughs> Says you. All right. It worked for you. Famous beach crossbow hunter, <laughs> Richard Wells. A director played by Terry Kaiser steps into frame to reset the action. Just off set, a digital Matrix van is parked with wires running to the camera. Apparently this commercial is basically being directed by the digital Matrix software. What was wrong with that one? What was wrong with that one? Not enough body twist, according to the computer. Oh, I'm sick and tired of this computer. Why can't we just do the scene? Come on, it's a 30-second spot. Details count, right? Well, it didn't used to be like this computer's telling us what to do. Cindy does the same jump over and over. Roberts watches the monitors in the digital matrix van until the technicians notice him and close the door. There are lines drawn, tracing the arc of each jump, and they decide that the actress can't achieve their goal for the spot, so they'll have to fix it in post, so to speak. You better tell them it's hopeless. We'll have to do our animation at DMI. The director tells Cindy that they're wrapping the set for the day, but she'll still be paid in full. All she has to do is report to DMI for a measurement, and again, Dr. Roberts offers to accompany her, which she finally starts to find suspicious. I have to assume that the cops are following both of them too, because if they suspect he killed the other three girls, there's no reason that they'd let him follow Cindy around all weekend like this. Right. Also, I I can't tell, but it seems like the director's really angry at Cindy. Yeah, he, he seems frustrated. Her, at it. For not hitting her marks that the computer is telling her to hit. It's like, it's like, dude, you're doing fucking nothing here. Yeah, exactly. You're literally just telling me what the monitor says. And she can't even see what the computer's asking her to do. Right. They just keep doing. She's. They just keep telling her to do it again. Yeah. But she's not being given really any clear direction. Yeah. When they arrive at DMI, the building standing in for the headquarters is the Art Center College of Design's Bridge Building in Pasadena. Do you guys recall the last time we saw this building in a film? It was also being used to take the measurements of a woman's body. Oh, was it the Incredible Shrinking Woman? That's right. Reston's second in command, Jennifer Long, notices Roberts waiting by the car. Spying on us. Oh, I'm just waiting for a friend. She offers him a tour of the facility. She leads him to the visual research room where they record the pupillary scans of volunteers. She offers Roberts a seat among them. After the commercial plays out, she replays the video on another monitor with a cursor tracing out the point on the screen where Roberts was focusing. She tells him that his focus was on the models, which is a problem because they want people to see the product. Hey, try making these women uglier instead. <laughs> or... Or have the product because uh, half the commercial is them sailing on a like a little like one of those. Uh, well, the what was the product? Windsurfing. It was yeah. like a shampoo. Yeah. So right. like, if you're looking at the model, you are was, looking at the it product. It was hairspray, right? but yeah. like, also don't put naked ladies in your commercials. Yeah, but I don't understand why you're using a computer to make them as distractingly beautiful as possible if you don't want people to look at them in the commercials. Jennifer plays footage of Lisa, the first balcony jumper, who scored a 94 out of 100 with her natural beauty, and after surgery, she jumped to 99, the limitations of a standard definition picture. But when she started to move, she dips back below her initial rating. That's why they need to start animating the actresses themselves in post. We cut away to Cindy being escorted to a human scanning machine. Along the way, she learns her contract pays out $100,000 a year, and she'll never have to work another day. The man points her to the platform and leaves her alone. She wonders aloud what the catch is, and an automated voice informs her. There must be a catch. Please proceed to the lighted circle after removing your clothing. Oh, I knew it! to hang your clothing outside the circle so they do not interfere with data recording. 
I, I do like what what the catch is. Is like it's like we'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> she strips down without hesitation, and the platform lowers into the floor. Inside the machine, we see her stand fully nude, and the computer projects shapes in light on her body while spinning her to perform a topographic scan. We get another bit of Vivaldi while the scan is underway. Help, Grace! Please do not move your lower jaw. It was just a joke. Failure to comply wastes valuable computer time. The whole scanning scene took three days of shooting, and Susan Day was not excited about being naked the whole time. It didn't need to take that long, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way they couldn't get this in two hours, what they get here. Yeah. Though I think it's pretty clever that i mean i don't think that they had this kind of technology in 81 not really where no. i mean I'm, we obviously do now where we essentially have rooms that are filled with led lights and and cameras in, like in the in the round in 360 so you could do like a you know a volumetric scan yeah um through through photographs uh so i think i do appreciate the fact that this was pretty futuristic thinking for them yeah there's a there's a lot of prescience to the to the script and then and then some that some moments later that we'll get to that just aren't you're just like wow you took this all that far and then you didn't even consider this other thing that would have been (laughs) but uh seeing all the lines projected on her reminded me of like all the behind the scenes of robert patrick in in terminator like where they were like drawing all the cube the squares on him like all over his body for them photographing him yeah Back on Jennifer's tour, Dr. Roberts notices a room with flashing lights visible from under the door. She says it's just a maintenance closet and she doesn't have access. She leads him past it to the scanning room and shows how once a model has been scanned into the machine, they can dress, style, and animate her any way they like for commercial use. He discreetly steals another employee's badge off the desk before Jennifer whisks him away to their voice synthesizer station. Well, some of these uh, computer models that they're bringing up on the screens are pretty impressive. Yeah. Some of them are clearly just like animated photographs of like just like of her rotating. Right. But like like the 3D model of the hand. And I was like, this is this is actually good CG. They're pretty advanced for anyone. Yeah. uh, There was a trivia point that I found. And I the only reason I didn't include it is because I couldn't find confirmation. But I couldn't find anything that disproved it either. That this was the first film to feature a fully cg shaded model of a human being because there there's footage of the cindy model in the computer without a texture on it when it's just a female spinning around that's like a human shape with with shading to it okay before they switch to the the the, the fil- one that we're the obviously filmed pictures. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah 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 hi i'm cindy i'm the perfect female type 18 to 25 i'm here to sell for you hi i'm cindy I'm the perfect female type, 18 to 25. I'm here to sell for you. After Cindy and Roberts have left, Jennifer reports the stolen badge to Reston and accuses Roberts. She asks permission to use a looker to check his home. Reston turns down the request. So somebody's badge was stolen. That means right. the person whose badge it is... Is responsible for it. Yeah, or is responsible or has, made a, has called attention to it. Yeah. So you simply... Deactivate that badge. Deactivate that badge and create a new one for that person. You knew what got taken Mm -hmm. and you still left it out there. Back at Robert's home, Cindy overhears a radio story about her deceased model friends and somehow concludes that Roberts has been protecting her these past couple days and not gearing up to kill her. (laughs) Yeah. The police are already investigating. What are they doing? Well, they asked me some questions yesterday. I'm sure I could be dead and they're still asking questions. Oh, Jesus, Larry! 
should have told me. I have a right to know if somebody's trying to kill me. She borrows his car and heads to her parents' home, where she finds them laughing hysterically, eyes affixed to the living room television. Cindy is bothered by the fact that they can't see her sadness. So, okay, so it didn't occur to me when I was watching, but it occurs to me now that are they being overly influenced by these commercials? Yes. Okay. And they're sucked into the television, yeah. Because I didn't realize that this technology that they're working towards was already deployed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or, it, or at least that's what we're, I guess, we're supposed to assume. Or, or it could just be a situation like the parents from Time Bandits who are just literally obsessed with everything that's on yeah. television. Yeah. Or the parents from... Uh, Matilda. Matilda, yeah. yeah. We cut to Rosevich approaching Robert's beach house with a gun briefcase. So I guess uh, Jennifer just sent him along without Reston's approval. So uh, I also like that he's credited as Mustache Man. Yeah. And like, well, that's pretty much every Tim Rosevich part that's that he's true, ever yeah. played. So I'm wondering if that character's name was created after the fact, after they cast Tim I Rosevich. I don't know. He's great, though. I love him. Inside, Roberts contemplates the best place to hide the security card he stole, eventually leaving it on the lower lip of a framed poster with the white side facing out to match the poster color. He grabs a beer from the fridge and looks out the window, and a flash of light seems to flash him 75 minutes into the future. The crowd on the beach are suddenly mostly gone, or packing up. Time flashes again, and the books on his shelf rearrange themselves. He flicks on the television and steps to the wet bar to splash some water on his face, when another flash fills the sink till it overflows on the floor. This, this guy has the ability to flash this dude whenever he wants. Mm-hmm. Why would he wait for a moment that's going to clearly indicate when you kind of come back to yeah. recognition that mm-hmm. you've been out of it for a long time? Or you flash him at the sink like that and, and then, then you turn, turn, the, turn water? the water off so yeah. right. that it doesn't overflow. Yeah. Or or why is the sink overflowing to begin with? Yeah. like Because the drain is full of what? <laughs> Explain yourself, sir. He walks back to the fridge, opens it again, and a final flash causes everything in the fridge to completely frost over. In my experience, leaving a small fridge open seems to have the opposite effect, <laughs> and the temperature slowly rises. Frost usually builds up if you don't open it often enough or have it set too cold. Well, but there's literally ice growing on it. It's not no, just frost. It's just, I, just water from the air. I disagree with that. So when you accidentally leave a freezer open, it, it gets frosty. I don't know why that happens but, but this it, wasn't a freezer it was a fridge no but those mini fridges have the freezers in them mm-hmm. i have so, one in my office if i left the door open everything would just be hot in an hour okay i'm just saying that i know that freezers tend to get icy when you leave the door open yeah i i, I still think this this reads as incorrect to me because it, he's doing what you do to defrost a refrigerator and it frosts it I, I think it is odd. Um, I, I see I see both points of, of view in this because uh, I I had a really old refrigerator where the freezer actually provided the cold air for the actual fridge part, and it was just constantly in a state of being encased in a thicker and yeah, thicker block of that's ice. That's what happens with mine. I end up having to leave the door open to get the thing to shrink down every once in a while. But uh, there's a more important uh, fact about this refrigerator. What, that it's full of Budweiser? It's full of RC Cola. Oh, there's some RC in there, <laughs> I was too, like, yeah. oh, yeah. Richard's favorite. A total of three hours have passed since the first light flash, but the card is still here. Whoever's been searching the place the whole time never noticed it. Cindy returns and notices Robert's looks confused. They head back to DMI together at night with the stolen security card. Dr. Roberts pretends to be an employee and signs in at the front desk. So 
So so did he just did Rossovich just give up? He goes. I well, guess so. Yeah. He's, I, I can't find he spent it. Three I'm, hours there and decided. I guess this guy didn't take the card because they don't know for sure that he took it. They just know that an employee lost one. Mm. It seems like I would I would have parked outside and waited. I would have just deactivated the card and given James Morton a new card immediately and been like, congratulations, there's no risk at all. Thank you for <laughs> reporting that the card was stolen. After he signs in, Roberts uses James Morton's access card to enter the facility and confesses to Cindy that he stole it. She's weirdly cool with breaking into the place, paying her $100,000 a year for no work. 200000 Is it two hundred? Yeah, it was 200000 200, yeah. Oh my God, that's ridiculous. Why would you even risk it? Like, I would let them kill me for 200000 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's like they, they offer you the money and they're like, this is great. And then they just kill you. We don't have to yeah. pay you now. And and I'm imagining he's only taking her to Digital Matrix to continue to keep an eye on her. But it seems like... This is the worst place this to bring her. Yeah. This <laughs> is the place where the murders can happen without people seeing. Let's go to murder headquarters. <laughs> I want to keep you safe. What? Rosovich walks up to the security guard at the front door and notices on the man's monitor that James Morton is trying his card on a lot of doors that he doesn't have clearance <laughs> on. I, I wish Rosovich had one line in this movie like, you're fired. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say a single word in the whole film, but it just seems like someone needs to fire the security guard. Which again is like classic Rosovich. Like he doesn't get very many lines and I don't see why. He's not He's not a bad actor. It's, yeah. just, it's just like they just like want him for his imposing nature. Yeah. Eventually, they get into the storage room, and it's full of film reels on racks. A robot rolls through the room and nearly smashes Cindy against the wall, but when she dodges the swinging arm of the machine, it just plugs itself in real quick into a hole in the wall that she was standing in front of. It's the most ridiculous charging mechanism. Is it a charger? Because it's yeah. plugged in for one second. Well, but yeah, cause you, and you see like a gauge, like, like Bing. Fill, yeah, it's like filling it up. But also, why would you create this charging device with such a arm that has to co- constantly unfold and completely? Yeah, especially come when out? this robot stays in a track. Mm-hmm, it should tra- be charged through the track. Exactly. <laughs> I've got more to complain about this robot in a few minutes. <laughs> it collects some trash, Wally style, and then rolls out of the room. Cindy and Dr. Roberts climb on top of it to gain access to even more secret offices. So, this is my problem. A door opens up and it grabs the garbage can. But when you see where it's dumping it, it's just dumping it into the internal mechanisms yeah, of the robot. You there's see, not like, a container inside. It's like circuit boards and wires and stuff yeah. like that. I was like, where is it dumping this trash? Yeah. What if this was full of gum? You just <laughs> exactly. totally fucked your like, robot. It's just like half-drunk soda cans just spilling inside <laughs> of it. <laughs> but this also, is- the door fully opens before they get on this thing to go into yeah, the Yeah, they didn't need could, to be on top of the they just walk room. in in just front of it? Just walk in behind it, yeah. <laughs> uh, but this reminded me, I, I don't know why I made a note, but I did. Um, the One of the levels of Perfect Dark on N64 is you have to reprogram a cleaning robot to access a vital area. So it's, so it seems like it's it's just doing its cleaning cycle, but you're actually following it as it unlocks all these security yeah. doors for you. See, I thought they were going to like judge dread that thing and climb inside the spaghetti robot. Oh, there you go. Roberts finds a booklet with paperwork that spells out the Looker acronym. Looker. Light ocular oriented kinetic emotive responses. A nearby television plays a commercial for Warrior All-Purpose Cleaner, and a housewife, played by Nurse Jill from Haddonfield Memorial last week, speaks to a metallic painted strongman warrior mascot. Cindy starts by making fun of the string out of commercials, but inserts of the model's glowing eyes seem to hypnotize her. She's suddenly repeating the lines from the commercial, I want it, to herself. 
Roberts tries to explain what he's reading, but she can't hear him now. She's too far gone. He has to turn her away from the television to get her attention back. He shows her pages describing the looker gun. Turns out it flashes light that makes the user seem invisible and also causes the person hit with it to freeze in place momentarily, like they get hypnotized and mm-hmm. they go into a trance. Rosevich stands up from behind a desk and fires a looker blast at them. Suddenly, a bit of time has passed, and Rosevich and Cindy are both invisible. Dr. Roberts is suddenly being punched and kicked around the room by an invisible foe. Some of the attacks send him flying ten feet backward through the air, eventually through a window even. Roberts spots the man attacking him on a monitor, so he's able to avoid an attack. He puts on protective glasses to shield himself from the weapon. The next time he gets flashed, the beam bounces off his glasses into Rosevich's eyes, and the tables have turned. He freezes the man, kicks him in the balls, freezes him again, and then goes to help Cindy off the floor. He also, like, pokes him with a rod. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, eh, yeah. <laughs> right in the guts. An alarm is set off, and they run from the building. But why? Why is an alarm set off? I don't Cause, know. Because uh, illegal exit is right, what it said. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> what does that entry, mean? Fine. Yeah, I guess. Illegal you- exit. We get a glimpse of John Reston setting up for an important presentation, and then we cut to Cindy sleeping in a bed at Robert's clinic. Roberts finds Lieutenant Master's business card and almost phones the man, but decides against it. Suddenly, the well, office... I, I think the phone doesn't yeah, the work. Yeah, fo- oh, the, the phone's phone dead, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, but also, this is the worst possible... Other than going back to your apartment, this yeah. is the second worst place that you could have taken Where her. could he have gone? Anywhere. Go to a motel. Don't what? even go to your car. They're going to blow your car up. Yeah. Well, I mean, that... that, that you that, have to just walk away from the place, and they yeah, catch up with you and kill you. There's it, nowhere to go. Well... Okay. There's nowhere safe and smart to go, so go somewhere stupid and comfortable. Yeah, exactly, I guess. Suddenly, the office is filling with smoke from another looker weapon, and Cindy is being kidnapped. The looker gun doesn't work as well in the fog, and multiple intruders start opening fire on him with bullets, like real bullets. Mm-hmm. Oh, great! Real bullets! Oh. My note is, they bring a different type of looker guns, the loud kind. <laughs> <laughs> Roberts sneaks a scalpel out of a filing cabinet. <laughs> it's filed under S, I hope. And he prepares to violate his Hippocratic oath. <laughs> he slashes open the hand of an intruder, and then the baddies just retreat down the hall with Cindy. They're like, never mind, that hurt. <laughs> Bye. But we've all got automatic weapons, but that guy cut me. So he grabs the scalpel, and he's 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 hanging down low, and I'm like, oh, man, he's going to go for that Achilles yeah. tendon. Like, yeah. it, I cannot like, wait. No, just slices across yeah, his he, hand. Just a gentle slice. At least just stab the guy. Yeah, just like, put it right in his gut. Because the way he slices the guy goes, ow. Yeah, exactly. You need to give him the full Loomis, where you just stab him in the gut. With yeah, it. exactly. Oh, and then like some, there's a couple of gunshots, and one of them hits the sink. That and he's it hiding. explodes. And well, yeah, water, water is coming up out of the drain. Like yeah. that's how you fill the sink. The fill, the sink fills up from the drain. Right. Yeah. It's how so does your sink work? There's just a spout of water <laughs> coming. There's out. a faucet at the top to catch it. <laughs> it sucks up the water when it reaches a certain exactly. level. <laughs> Three inches above the height of the sink. Yeah, the whole what room has be? to be filled with water. <laughs> Later, we see the police investigating the scene, but Roberts didn't stick around to give testimony. Well, it's important to note that Masters talks to his associate and says, did you get all the looker devices? Yeah, we we, we hit him away. And I was like, so it's like like, he's in on it. He's in on it. Yeah. I was like, there's no other, there's no other implication of this. Yeah. There's no other implication. That's all it could possibly mean. 
<laughs> and so I'm like, okay, Masters is in on it. Right. Going forward, I know and this information. And even Tina, before she died, told him, the police, you didn't call the police, the mm-hmm. police are in on it. Okay. So I want to make it clear to the people who are listening. Yeah, it's been confirmed now. <laughs> yeah, it's confirmed that Masters is in on this. We see Roberts driving later, and Rosovich tries to hit him with a looker gun while he's driving full speed. <laughs> Roberts manages to block the light beam with his hand and arm a few times and hits Rosovich instead, who for some reason still isn't wearing his glasses. <laughs> yeah. Just put your stupid glasses on before you start firing your looker gun around. <laughs> because then you see him looking in the rearview mirror, and Rosovich's driver is like shaking him and like yelling yeah, at him. As the car is slowing down. <laughs> it's like, he's like, what are you doing? They catch back up again, and Rosovich manages to hit Roberts in the eyes. And he wakes up minutes later with his car in a nearby fountain. Well, well before that, though, he he almost hits a g- bunch of nuns right, who are yeah. crossing the street. So he comes to a complete stop for the nuns, but so do the bad guys. The well, bad yeah, guys also stop nuns. for the nuns, and no one takes any action except the nuns who smash his hood and yell at him for being yeah. a jerk. I was yeah. like, man, these are some angry nuns. Well, they have the right of way. A lot of people in heaven with the right of way. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Roberts runs away before the police can arrest him for crashing into this fountain, and then he lays down in the back of one of their cruisers while they're distracted with something else. I don't even know what they're doing. Yeah. They're like, there's something in this bush, and all the cops <laughs> go over there. There's like there's like 10 police cars arrive, and, and some lady just yells, he's over there. <laughs> like, it's such a weird voice. Yeah. Um, and so they all run into the bushes, and he sneaks around a cruiser. And then just catches some Zs. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to sleep. What is he doing? But, but you have to understand, when you get inside the back of a police car. You're powerless. You you cannot get out of the police car. The window is open in the back of the car. So he can right. crawl right out the window. Right now it is. But also, the amount of times that people don't see somebody in a car in this movie is annoying mm-hmm. because when you walk up to a car, you can see the person. You can see the back scene. I yeah. thought for sure that he was going to steal the cruiser and drive away, but that's yeah. not what he does no. at all. No, he lays down in the back of it. Yeah, and this might work at night, like if you're in the yeah. like a like your like a dark street and you lay down in the back, then maybe someone might not see you. But in the middle of broad daylight, in a bright blue shirt. And just hunkered down on the ground. Yeah. And constantly farting, <laughs> as we know Albert Finney to be. <laughs> that night, two cops are driving when he alerts them to his presence, and eventually we see them passed out as he puts on the better-fitting uniform of the two. Well, they're not even police. They're 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 like security. They're Reston's security. Yeah. Um, and so he's like- Wait, uh, so Reston's security were the ones that attended the scene of this accident? Yes. yes. With yeah. police cruisers. With, with police- you, you see when it, you see the wide shot of it, it says like R.I. security, but it's painted like a black and white. Yeah. Uh, but then he asks them, like, do they know about Looker? And when he realizes they don't know anything about it, that's when he pulls out the device yeah. and, and, and Lookers them. Yeah. What's the- From Looker, behind. Yeah. But Roberts heads into Reston's big presentation dressed as one of his private security team. But it's immediately noticed. Right. Because he doesn't look like anybody on their team and he looks like Albert Finney, who they're all chasing. Jennifer Long works in a control room of cameras where they have Cindy locked up for the time being. Reston speaks to a crowd of investors about the power of broadcasting and seems to notice Roberts moving through the crowd in disguise but says nothing to his staff. I feel like I would at least be like, 
oh, Robert's good to see you. Mm-hmm. Because it's well, like, that doesn't imply that anything is out of the ordinary. And right. then your attendants know to go grab the guy. It becomes clear that Rosevich is already following Dr. Roberts very closely until he has a pistol in his back and leads him out of the room. But what are you going to do? Are you going to shoot him right you're here? You're going to shoot him right here. In a room right... full of investors. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. No. This gun is worthless. Reston's demonstration shows how digital actors can populate a scene in place of organic ones. Candy, from Reston's earlier party, notices Dr. Roberts and goes to shake his hand, but then he runs off at the last second, seemingly trying to get Candy shot, <laughs> and the hand she reaches out with grabs Rosevich's gun, but luckily he doesn't pull the trigger. Right. He could have gotten her killed right here. Roberts gets into an elevator before it closes, and he escapes. <laughs> escapes further up the building. Mm-hmm. He exits the elevator on the same control room floor where Cindy is being held, and Jennifer remotely starts rotating various assorted sets into place in time with the scheduled demonstration. She doesn't know that he's on this floor. She's Mm. just moving sets around because they need to be pointed at cameras for certain scenes. A digital clone of Senator Robert Harrison is superimposed into an Oval Office set. Ladies and gentlemen, Senator Robert Harrison, candidate for president of the United States. He gives a little speech with the same glowing eyeballs to get the whole crowd hypnotized. Another backdrop whirs to life, and Cindy's digital clone acts out a commercial for Formula Blast cleaning product. Unclear why you'd need practical sets for a high-quality CGI model to walk around in, since the kitchen set is way lower polygon count than that human. <laughs> That's, yeah, this is, of, of all the leaps of faith in this movie, this is the one that bothers me the most. That the I'm only like, reason, there is a reason for it that I could understand, and it's so that humans that are there in the scene could interact with these scans of people. Yeah, I guess, but... It it it's seems like necessary. it's it seems like it's not needed. They they have they have commercials where they have multiple digital people in them. So right. like, doesn't seem like you need any physical people. So why yeah. do you also need the physical set, which is going to be so much easier to reproduce than right. that original Just, person? If you didn't you have a scan of the guy and you needed them to be in the scene and you didn't have twenty seconds for them to do the scan. Yeah. But otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Well, yeah. it, it, it feels like there's, you know, just like at the very beginning of this movie where she's wandering around in her underwear and leaves the door open and all this other stuff that just doesn't really necessarily make sense. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's only there as a, a, a way to make the plot move forward the way right. we need it to move forward. And I love what happens as a result of this set. I mean, yeah. it's hilarious, well, but it's not right. No. Well, because everything has to be on some kind of mechanism. So when cupboard doors open or close, yeah. when the trunk of the car opens, everything has to be automated automated yeah. to make these motions so it that seems they like so much more work that just make so, it digital. Because <laughs> you have to then you have to work with the timing yeah. of the animation. Yeah. Yeah, it, it the whole the whole thing. Plus, this whole sequence goes on for like ten solid minutes. Yeah, it's it's a while. And it's this weird cat and mouse of like hiding behind fake walls and then rotating. It's like, oh no, now you can see me because the room rotated. Yeah, and it, and then they do this thing where it's like the same joke happens four times in a row, mm-hmm. and by the end, the audience isn't laughing at it anymore, and neither are we because we're just like, <laughs> yeah, I just saw this joke like three times. How many times was I supposed to think it was funny? Every time I see it. Uh, what looks like a dead body in a commercial added in. I yeah, do think it's funny. True. Or a guy sneaking through with a gun. Yeah. 
The crowd watching the commercials breaks into laughter when they notice Dr. Roberts not so discreetly peeking over the countertop like some kind of hostage in the background of this <laughs> cleaning product commercial. Jennifer is not amused. Damn, how did he get here? She walks out onto the stage to catch him, but Rosovich sees her silhouette through a curtain and he shoots Jennifer twice, mistaking her for Dr. Roberts. It's like, it's clearly, clearly a lady. Another bedroom set wakes up, and again, the crowd laughs to see Rosovich with a gun sitting next to an old couple in bed. Rosovich shoots first again, this time at a rolling camera. Dr. Roberts climbs into what looks like a prize car on a platform and rides low in the driver's seat. Because <laughs> again, you can just hide in car seats, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> a CGI swimsuit model walks up to the car to sing its praises, and again, Rosovich can be seen on TV standing with a gun behind it. It's a running gag now, as far as the audience is concerned. When Rosovich spots Roberts in the car, he shoots out the windshield, but then Roberts flashes Rosovich unconscious and tries to take his gun when Reston shows up and shoots at Roberts, but hits Rosovich in the head. Right between the eyes. Yeah. Rosovich falls backward across a table that rolls into a kitchen scene. Two children are complaining about the same old breakfast they eat every day, but they're eating it off of a table covered with a man's corpse. <laughs> On a monitor near the stage, Reston notices security guard Roberts creeping by the Oval Office window. So again, this is what's weird. That table was empty. Right. But in the commercial, there are bowls and milk and cereal boxes. They're, they're not... So the props are cg The props are CG'd in. Why is the table real? <laughs> called visual effects yeah <laughs> what this would prevent dead bodies from being in your scene because yeah. <laughs> the dead body's not going to accidentally be designed and rendered you know what i think would have made this whole sequence a little bit more interesting although much more like you would have to have thought about it a lot more would be if we were watching the commercials that the audience was watching them. So we watched the whole scene from the perspective of the... From the commercials. You yeah. would see like them sneaking around in different commercials. It would feel like that, uh, was it Olive Garden commercial that kept playing on loop? Oh, the the Great Choice commercial? Yeah. The Red Lobster. Yeah, Red Lobster. That's what it was. Uh, yeah, because you would see like someone shooting and then the next scene, like the next commercial, there'd be a dead body on the table yeah and, and we would have you just understand what happened because you just saw the last commercial right you have to pick out what's real and what's rendered mm -hmm. in the scene but they didn't do that no lieutenant masters has entered the building now and joins the manhunt so now reston roberts and masters are all following each other around with guns on this stage mm. but robert's gun is like a fun like light gun <laughs> doesn't do anything to anybody unless you're a duck hunt duck. yeah <laughs> I wish every time he missed that a dog popped up and just laughed at him. <laughs> Reston fires on Roberts with a real gun, and Roberts returns fire with a fake gun. Masters hits Reston in the throat with real bullets. <laughs> I was just like, what happened? Why did you do that? I thought you were a bad guy. I, I was like, I was totally confused about everything that just happened. Because <laughs> I was like, why did Masters shoot his boss? Yeah. If he's not in on it. I don't think he is in on it. Okay, well, he must not be because he shot Reston in the throat, and it and it clearly wasn't an accident. Right. But then, why did he sound so complicit with covering up what they were doing? Yeah, they, he knew about the looker device. They knew all about the devices. Unless they were just getting really close in the case. I think that he was just trying to break through the case and have all of the stuff that they needed. And they just played it for us in a way that made it very yeah. suspicious. Yeah, but then it's even more suspicious when this happens and literally credits roll. Yeah, 
I was like, there's no debriefing. Nope, nope, <laughs> I need to like, be debriefed. Le- it's the same as the last two murder scenes that they let Roberts just walk out of. It's just like, oh, another person died. Anyway, probably wasn't you, right? You seem like a cool guy. <laughs> but we watched James Coburn die in the background of another fun family commercial as confused investors look on. I think if I saw a commercial for spurt toothpaste <laughs> and a gunman was inexplicably bleeding out in the foreground of a yoga class or whatever the scene is, I would definitely run out and buy that toothpaste immediately. <laughs> I don't think I would buy any toothpaste called spurt. spurt. Oh my God, that's the best name. Cindy manages to get herself unhandcuffed and joins Dr. Roberts on the Matrix-looking green and black wireframe stage. He tells her that he's going to take her on a date to show his gratitude. I don't date my patients. I am one of your patients. Not anymore. Why not? Because I want to take you out on a date. As they walk off the stage together, we hear a voice narrating the rest of Reston's presentation as though nothing had gone tragically wrong. (laughs) Is there no button to turn this off? And where did Masters go? Yeah, he just disappeared. It was like, oh shit. Masters was CG. (laughs) Can't believe you fell for that. Or he just realized, I was like, oh crap, I just killed my boss. (laughs) Fuck, that's not Roberts. (laughs) I need to get out of (laughs) here. We get a reprise of the film's original theme song over the credits. That's the end. I, Looker, I, I, I was so like the first half of this movie had me. I was on board for the first half of this movie. I like the last set piece the best. Uh, Walking around in commercials that are that have live titles and graphics <laughs> being applied to them, but but with bloopers like included in the right. in the final cut. The second half, everyone's making such laughable decisions, and and the yeah. most re- the editing is super bad. It's. Like, he just gets into the police car, and then it cuts to... It's nighttime. Yeah. It's like, how long was he back there? I think he literally went to sleep. (laughs) I think he got in the car, and he slept (laughs) for six hours. He just points the looker device at himself. It's like, oh, this catch like 20, 30 minutes. He's like, I'll show you, (laughs) Reston. And then he rested. And it's Michael Crichton. Like, I don't... Michael Crichton does really cheap sci-fi stuff I mean, a lot of the time. Like, I guess watch they can't... Sphere and watch this and tell me which one's worse. They Oops. can't all be winners. I, I like Sphere. I, I, I know that it's a bad movie, but I, I enjoy it. I, I haven't seen it since it came out, but I remember liking it. <laughs> I just remember that me and Mikey used to make fun of the trailer for it because it would be like, they sat down and a computer started talking to them and it was like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I live here at the bottom of the ocean. And they're like, oh that's nice and he's like yes it's very happy to meet you i am happy and they're like oh no and he's like what, what he's like what happens weird? if it gets angry <laughs> it's like what that's it saying it was happy is ominous because it sometimes might not be but i mean i guess when you're gonna take wild stabs in the dark you know sometimes you bring back dinosaurs based on dna from you know ancient mosquitoes but other times you have flashy light guns well, that make people forget I mean, Jurassic Park (laughs) was basically ripping off of Westworld. Like, he already had a proven success. Mm. And then he was just like, cowboys, dinosaurs? Dinosaurs are pretty cool. Let's do it with dinosaurs. Well, and that's why they bring it up. Are are these dinosaurs (laughs) auto-erotic? (laughs) Auto-erotic. Oh, I love the lawyer. Gennaro's my favorite character in that movie. You could have a coupon day or something. This movie falls apart in the second half for me. And and I, I just... I was just so flabbergasted by the rolling of credits. It feels no below Finney to do this movie. I'm not sure why he's in here. He also looks probably 20 years younger than he did in Wolfen. Like, I don't know what happened. It's a plastic like, surgeon. 
Oh, you think? No, he, just was... to get uh, to get a feel for it for the character, he he went under the knife. Um, but yeah, he looks great here. But then he was also playing like a big fat drunk in that movie, so maybe he was actually just drinking hardcore on set every day. But I like Rosovich so much, and I like him and Finney fighting, <laughs> like the <laughs> flying backward through the air, like doing that like cartoon chest mm-hmm. kick, because um, it's like the camera's like attached to him as he's flying across the room it's it's fun it's a fun image why did they keep cindy alive um because they had a presentation they didn't have time to kill her the same (laughs) reason they didn't have time to send a looker to his house but jennifer did it anyway because she was like i don't care i i'm worried about him having this access to the building and it turned out she was right Mm -hmm. um but it didn't matter because she sent an unqualified person to find the card I could have found that card. I was really hoping that Tim Rosovich would look at the register and see that Dr. Roberts signed in. Yeah. He didn't write down the name on the card. <laughs> That'd be better. I was like, what? Dr. Roberts? Every time they say Dr. Roberts in this movie, I think of uh, I, I, Regina I, Spector. Yeah. I, I just kept getting tongue-tied whenever they said Looker Lab. we got to get into the Looker Lab. The Looker Lab. Yeah. This is Looker. Um. It reminded me a lot of the trailers I'd seen for Simone, a.k.a. Sim 1. Oh, boy. Which I just watched last night in preparation to see how similar it is. And there is a lot of stuff that's the same. But that movie is so much worse than I expected it's it to be. It's terrible. Like, it seems like there's there was no budget to the movie. And so the entire thing is literally shot in one big empty soundstage with an editing bay in the middle of it. It just seemed like, really? This is what this movie was about? I remember the trailers and it had all these big names in it. Mm-hmm thought it was going to be important but there's nothing to the movie and al pacino's character is so dumb like he makes this fictional actress character in cgi and he plugs her into movies because his lead actress walked away mm-hmm. on the set of his latest film and when uh, when she wins all these awards he programs her whole acceptance speech and forgets to thank himself and her acceptance speech There's also a really uncomfortable sequence in the film where Pacino gets jealous of his creation and tries to tank her career by saying the most offensive shit he can think of. And it's all modern-day mega-platform stuff now. (laughs) Now, Simone, before the break, you were taking a rather controversial position. I just think all elementary schools should have a firing range. How else can the children learn to defend themselves? If there is a hole in the ozone layer, how come I can't see it? Immigration, God, isn't it crowded enough? Wow. Oof. So he gets so mad at her for reading the script that he wrote and not what he meant to write that he decides he's going to kill her, even though she's world famous now. And so he kills her in the way that you would kill a human, which is to disassemble it, put it in a suitcase and throw it overboard in shark infested waters so that when footage shows up of him taking a suitcase to shark infested waters they assume that he killed this actress and it's like why didn't you just turn off the computer and not make <laughs> new footage with her <laughs> i don't know why you had to murder this computer it doesn't make any sense yeah but that's simone for you it's a weird movie what are we thinking thumbs up boy i give it a thumbs up just because of the last set piece of <laughs> of the assassins <laughs> and like people being chased by murderers trying to hide in the backgrounds of live commercials that that imagery is just so fun it's like a like a too many cooks yeah kinda, like, it, it honestly I, I wouldn't be surprised if he thought of this image first like 
he was just watching a toothpaste commercial and he'd be like wouldn't it be funny if there was a gunfight going on in the background and then tried to explain why the fuck that would be happening and why the characters wouldn't be reacting to it uh, I, I think I'll I think I'm giving it a thumbs down I I just just because of of the lack of any kind of like ending to this movie because like are they still gonna go like the se- like are they gonna reveal anything like yeah. are they gonna like take down this senator or, or, or are they gonna do anything is the senator about- gonna do anything bad yeah why don't you hint at some nefarious plan the senator has I don't it- even know if he came in for this scan or if he just made it Right. Well, I think the nefarious scam is just getting elected through this process that isn't fair. Did he have to undress? Is it not fair? Well, yeah. They're literally like hypnotizing people into doing what they want. Buying a product, electing a person. Is that against the rules? Anybody could do that if they wanted to. Uh, apparently, it's apparently it's okay. Yeah. It's totally fine. I'm sure, I'm sure there must be some kind of FCC law on the books about post-hypnotic or subtle messaging in super liminal <laughs> join the navy uh yeah all right i'm in <laughs> oh that actually that um what was it i was see i saw a clip of america's got talent yeah and they they cut away from a performance to like one of the side hosts because they said they couldn't show someone being hypnotized on television mm. what? i don't know if that's really a thing but they said that and then once they once they did the initial hypnotizing and then they cut back to it, I'm like, well, maybe that's just a trick to show you that that shit doesn't work. But, yeah. but they got Howie Mandel to shake a guy's hand by pretending, by hypnotizing him to make him think he was wearing gloves because, you know, he's a big germaphobe. But I've seen Howie Mandel shake lots of people's hands even after the germaphobe stuff. Yeah. One time I saw him put plastic across a toilet seat <laughs> and then a kid pissed on it. It's in the movie a little. Oh, monsters. little monsters! Ah, oh, damn it! <laughs> Come on! I, I was. It was. It was coming. It was coming. One time, I saw him shoot a tiny crossbow through a ventilation shaft at a giant spider gremlin. <laughs> that was him doing that. He was in a full body gizmo. <laughs> oh, yeah. He wore the gizmo suit I, on set every day. It was a giant minute. They were huge. They like, never pointed the sets. camera at him, but he's dressed as gizmo every day on set. But yeah, it's a thumbs up for me. What are we thinking, Letterboxd? Well, did you give it a? Oh, I don't think oh. I would give it a thumbs up. I <laughs> I just assumed that. You I just guess. assumed that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you are correct. It. Uh, I don't know. It just wasn't wasn't my thing. I'm not going to recommend it to anyone. So I have it at eighty eight out of one fifty one. Kind of in the middle. It's below Backroads, uh, but above. What is this poster? What's the one with the baby paternity? Sure. Where he's doing the I want you poster, but oh, yeah, it's with yeah, the baby. That's paternity. Yeah. Okay, but it's above paternity. Richard. See, like I want to move it around, but I don't. Screw it. I'm putting it back where I had it. Um Number one. Because I started scrolling down, I was like, oh no. No, no, it's no. not above this. <laughs> These are way worse. Um so I actually have it pretty high at sixty three. I consider that high for this movie. Yeah. Uh, because, again, I was pretty entertained. Yeah. Like, I, it has I, its moments. It has its moments, and I think there's there's some good ideas in here. Just Coburn bleeding out with women doing <laughs> leg exercises behind <laughs> just cracked me up. Uh, so I have it at 63, which is uh, below night school, but above true confessions. All right. I have it in 68, so pretty close to you. Um, 
I have it under Coming At Ya and just above First Monday in October. Our writer-director here was Michael Crichton. He's a sci-fi novelist who has seen many of his novels adapted to film, some of which he directed himself, though in this case the film is not even based on a book, but an original Crichton script. Before this, he'd written Andromeda Strain, Westworld, which he directed, The Terminal Man, and Coma. After this, he writes Runaway, which he also directed, Rising Sun, most famously Jurassic Park, and later Disclosure, Congo, Twister, Sphere, and Timeline. He also created ER with Spielberg. Years later, Crichton would marry Anne Marie Martin, who we saw last week as Darcy Essman in Halloween 2, released the same day in theaters. Both films also starred Tawny Moyer. The music here came from Barry Dvorzon. We just had him recently scoring The Warriors. We also heard his work in The Ninth Configuration, Xanadu, and Tattoo, and later he scores Exorcist 3. Cinematographer Paul Lohman was the DP on Nashville, Time After Time, Meteor, and So Far on the Show, Hide in Plain Sight, Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, and Mommy Dearest. Editor here was Carl Kress. He previously cut The Towering Inferno, Audrey Rose, Meteor, and So Far on the Show, Hopscotch. He's back later to cut Stroker Ace, Cannonball Run 2, and Bloodsport. Albert Finney was Dr. Larry Roberts. This is only our second Finney film after Wolfen. He has four Best Actor nominations for Tom Jones, Murder on the Orient Express, The Dresser, and Under the Volcano, and a supporting nomination for Aaron Brockovich, but sadly he never won. He was also in the 1970s Scrooge, and next season he is Daddy Warbucks in Annie. He's also in Traffic, Big Fish, Corpse Bride, Born Ultimatum, and finally Skyfall before passing away in 2019. James Coburn played John Reston. We saw him last season in Baltimore Bullet and Loving Couples, and earlier this season in High Risk. I always think first of Derek Flint from Our Man Flint and In Like Flint, the original Austin Powers movies, that weren't trying too hard to be a parody. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were very... Uh, they seemed more like just a ripoff yeah. than a parody. He's also Sedgwick, the manufacturer in The Great Escape, Brit in The Magnificent Seven. He's the voice of Mr. Waternoose in Monsters, Inc., and he plays Cuba Gooding Jr.'s biological father in the film Snow Dogs. <laughs> I'm white. My son is black. He's also Justin Fairfax, uncredited for some reason, in Payback with Mel Gibson. Uh, it's supposed to be Fairfax. That's probably right. I probably typoed it. Because I, I was just going to bring up his, his short part as Fairfax in that film. Yeah. But I also mostly like him in uh, Hudson Hawk. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's so great in Hudson Hawk. I was going to say, isn't Rosovich in there too? But it's a different guy, right? That's a very Rosovich like Yeah, oh, the, yeah, Butterfinger. Butterfinger. Yeah, he, he, I think he, it's the same guy who played uh, Zangief in Street Fighter, maybe? I can't remember. I thought it was the guy, um, Randall Tex Cobb or something. Maybe it's not him. No, no, it's somebody not, younger. Yeah, than him. it's somebody. Um, but he, I think he was also in. Uh, Batman, They're all the same type. Batman though. Returns. Yeah. Oh, okay. But Randall Tex Cobb is like, is like a generation earlier version of the same character. Oh yeah. Susan Day played Cindy Fairmont. She got her start as Lori Partridge on The Partridge Family, but is the only member of the cast who has refused to appear for any of their reunions. She was also Joe in a 1978 Little Women miniseries. Not many credits I recognized after this, but she's very pretty, and she was charming in this film. I thought, I thought she was fine. I, I'm surprised mm -hmm. she didn't do more. Lee Taylor Young played Jennifer Long. This was her first film in like eight years for some reason. The part was originally offered to Julie Christie, who we last saw in Demon Seed, but she had to drop out of the project for some reason. Well, it doesn't seem like a very big part for her to play. I think it was probably bigger if she was there. At the very least, she probably wouldn't have just been unceremoniously killed in that last shootout. 
She's Cheryl in this month's Patreon pick, Soylent Green. We also saw her last season in Can't Stop the Music, and she was Rachel Harris in Picket Fences. Dorian Harewood played Lieutenant Masters. He was 8-Ball in Full Metal Jacket. He voiced Shredder for four episodes of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. As far as I knew, Shredder was basically half and half with James Avery and Jim Cummings, so maybe he was like an interim voice when they were changing it up? I don't know. He also voiced Bupkiss, the littlest Monstar, who takes over Larry Johnson's basketball talents. Obviously, he only does the voice in Monstar mode, and the little Bupkiss voice is provided by Space Jam director Ivan Reitman's daughter, Catherine. Tim Rosovich played Mustache Man. He's a former NFL player, I think for the Oilers, right? But then in the MacGyver episode, he says he played for the Titans, which didn't exist yet, but then Mm -hmm. the Oilers became the Titans. He's Mike Desmond and the political prisoner on MacGyver, and we saw him last season in the Ninth Configuration and the Long Riders. More recently, he was in Cheech and Chong's Nice Dreams as Detective Noodles. His final acting credit reunited him with Stacey Keach for an episode of Mike Hammer, Private Eye. Daryl Hickman played Dr. Jim Belfield. He was David Morris in William Castle's The Tingler, Bill Heron in Network. He's also Smiley in Sharky's Machine later this season. Catherine Witt played Tina Cassidy. She was Robin in Star 80 and Melissa Benedict in Philadelphia. Terry Wells played Lisa Convey. She was a Playboy playmate and the girlfriend at the time of director Michael Crichton. An amusing story from set claims that she refused to wear the same clothes to multiple shoot days and could not comprehend the continuity issues (laughs) that would result from her outfit constantly changing within a scene. Crichton literally couldn't get it through to her, so he had to have another playmate explain it to her in their secret model language. (laughs) In Crichton's defense, she is super hot. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Hawkins played Senator Robert Harrison. He was a Pepsi executive and mommy dearest and Captain Jack Packerton in The Black Marble. Catherine Parks played Jan. This is her first film. She was a former Miss Florida. She's Vera in next season's Friday the 13th 3D and Tina in Weekend at Bernie's, starring the next name in the credits. Mm -hmm. Terry Kaiser is the commercial director. He's the titular Bernie of Weekend at Bernie's. He also gets a turn in the Friday the 13th films as Dr. Cruz in Part 7, The New Blood. He was also H.G. Wells in an episode of Lois and Clark. The scientist who put Paul Walker's brain in a robotic dinosaur in Tammy and the T-Rex. And we saw him last as Chuck Norris's ill-fated partner Dave Pierce in An Eye for an Eye. Before that, he was also the day manager of the store that Gene Hackman's was night managing in All Night Long. George Ann Johnson played Cindy's mother. She was Mama Quinn on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and Lily Bell in Altman's Health. Richard Venture played Cindy's father. He was Franklin in Series 7 The Contenders with Brooke Smith from Silence of the Lambs. Anthony Charnada played Master's assistant. He was Lou Gennaro in Deadpool. That's one of the villains of that film that gets sent off to prison. Terrence E. McNally played technician in Scanning Room. That's the guy who just leads her to the platform. Right. He was the soap opera doctor in Earth Girls Are Easy, and we saw him last season as Gar in Battle Beyond the Stars and a cop in 9 to 5. David Adams played a DMI guard. He was Sanford in Those Lips, Those Eyes, and later this season he's an FBI interviewer in The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. John Sanderford played DMI policeman. He was J.D. in Leprechaun and Albright in Firestarter, and he's Zach Morris's dad, Derek Morris, in Saved by the Bell. Arthur Taxier played DMI truck technician. He was Dr. Fisher in Dottie Darko and Professor in Old School. Gina Kyo played Susie. She was a Vestal Virgin in History of the World Part 1. Barry Jenner played commercial producer. He was Lieutenant Murtaugh in 18 Family Matters episodes and Admiral Ross in 12 Deep Space Nines. 
Melissa Prophet played Commercial Script Girl. She played a character named Miss Hollywood on The Gong Show, where she worked as an assistant to Chuck Barris. She was also an Easy Street model in Melvin and Howard, and Angie in Goodfellas, and Jennifer Santoro in Casino. Gary Combs played Nondescript Man. Who's Nondescript Man? Is he someone in one of the commercials, maybe? I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I vaguely remember yeah. him. <laughs> He played the Gorn in the famous Gorn fight at Vasquez Rocks. We also saw him last year breaking a horse in Tom Horn and holding up a subway car in Hero at Large. Kim Johnson played a rest-on girl. She was Beth in the Great Skycopter Rescue, which will get a Minnesota episode eventually. Lori Sutton played another rest-on girl. She was another Vestal Virgin in History of the World Part 1 and Beverly in Malibu Express. A lot of these rest-on girls were also Vestal Virgins because they were all actual Playboy playmates right. at the time. Because Hugh Hefner was rest in the on. Movie. <laughs> Reston, rest on. Same thing. Rest on applied directly to the forehead. <laughs> applied directly to the rest. For for rest. Forest. <laughs> applied directly to the forest. Vanna White played Rest On Girl. She was the co-host of Wheel of Fortune and she plays herself in a lot of stuff. We saw her last in graduation day as Girl Who Pisses Herself, <laughs> aka Doris. Pamela Jean Bryant played Rest On Girl. She was Sue Ellen in Don't Answer the Phone and Joyce in Private Lessons. Anita Merritt played Rest On Girl. She was Slave Girl in Holy Moses and a Mud Wrestler in Stripes. Carol Teasdale played Rest On Girl. She was Sally in Runaway. That's a later Crichton film that he writes and directs about Tom Selleck killing runaway robots, robots yeah. in los angeles that's got kirstie alley right yeah it's weird jerry douglas played a laxative spokesman he was a radio interviewer for the christmas scene in mommy dearest he's the guy who helps them uh read uh twas the night before christmas on the radio randy brooks played girl in bikini this was her first film and she's also fran in the man with two brains cherry in terror vision and mrs vunk in hamburger the motion picture Estelle Omens played Wife. We saw her last as Betty in Dead and Buried. Before that, she was Mrs. Herzog with Coburn in Loving Couples and Mrs. R.H. Broach in Stir Crazy. Steve Strong played the Warrior. He was the Ivory King from Tarzan the Ape Man. So both times we've seen him now, he's been completely painted. Mm -hmm. The first time he was painted totally white and this time totally silver. And both are cleaning products. Right. What? because he was the warrior because he was the ivory king you think that was a, a product placement by ivory <laughs> tawny moyer played warrior housewife she was just nurse jill in halloween 2 last week richard christie played father he was ted lawson in 96 episodes of small wonder Catherine deheater played mother she was jan watkins in meteor and kenny in being there allison balson played daughter she was Nancy Olson in A Bunch of Little House on the Prairie, and we saw her last season as Alice in The Hearse. Vin Scully played himself. <laughs> I don't remember Vin Scully in here. Yeah. Did they even go to a baseball game? Maybe they were, oh, it, was, it was on the TV, the TV that the yeah. security guard is watching. And it will be Nolan Ryan for the Astros. We'll just have to wait and see about who will be the pitcher for the Dodgers. He called 67 seasons of games for the Los Angeles Dodgers, the longest collaboration of any sportscaster with any one team in professional sports history. That's across all sports. It's the longest. For almost 70 years he was doing that. That's crazy. He just passed away in August of last year. John Irwin played commercial announcer. He was the voice of He-Man in various animated series and a guest spot on Family Guy, but he's like the official voice of He-Man. Suzanne Severide played the tour guide. She also played a hooker in Don't Answer the Phone last season. 
I think that's everything for Looker. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron, Chuko Ed. As a $5 patron of the show, Ed now has access to 40 full-size 70s reviews, 40 minisodes from 1980, and a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you, Ed, for your contribution to the show. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Roar, which IMDb describes like so. A naturalist living with big cats in East Africa expects a visit by his family of four from Chicago. A mix-up leaves him searching for his family who have been left in the clutches of wild lions. We leave you now with the trailer, if there is one, for Roar. The clouds have all and the storm has come and gone. And while the road was long, the Spirit helped us through. Here we are in Eden. This is a madhouse. No, it is. It's just like life. You get the funny with the tragic. Here we are in Eden. Though we walk the stage. Almost looked away. See the shadow of the eagle in the sunrise. Hear the music of the children in the moonrise. Feel the power of the lion when he roars like thunder. Roar. But you look at cats. The cats got a little excited. Yeah, that's all. Oh, You know what your friends are probably doing to our family right now? They are eating. Shut up. Roar. <laughs>